Uh, Job 31 on page 6. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. For what is our lot from God above, our heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? If I have walked with falsehood, or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales, and he will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbour's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, and may other men sleep with her. For that would have been wicked, a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have uprooted my harvest. If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they have a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb also make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? If I have denied the desires of the poor, or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread for myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I have reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow, if I have seen anyone uh, perishing for lack of clothing, or the needy without garments, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I have influence in the court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder and let it be bro broken off at the joint, for I dreaded the destruction from God, and for fear of his splendour, I could do no such thing. If I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced, rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands have gained. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendour, so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. If I have rejoiced in my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I have not allowed my, sin, uh, my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against their life. If those in my household have never said, who uh, has not been filled with Job's meat, but no stranger had to spend the night on the street for my door was always open to the traveller. If I have concealed my sins, as people do, by hiding my guilt in my heart, because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defence. Let the Almighty answer me. Let, me, let my accuser put, put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. 
I would put it down, uh, put it on like a crown, and it would, and I would give him an account for my every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. If my land cries out against me, and all my its, its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment, or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let the briars come up instead of wheat, and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. And Romans 8. Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening. How are you? My name is Rob Forsyth. I'm one of the team here at uh, the Churchill Parish. My normal stamping ground is the 8.30 service. Yes, we have church that early, guys. Would you believe it? Uh, Up there at St Philip's. But it's a great joy to occasionally be let loose down here at the four o'clockers. I very much appreciate the privilege. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Back in 2001, in the week of its launch, an Australian comedy film debuted at number one in the Australian box office. It was called The Man Who Sued God. And it's about this guy with an insurance claim for his fishing boat, which had been destroyed by lightning. It's turned down by an insurance company because the loss was, they claim, an act of God. So this man sets out to sue God for his loss and chooses the leaders of the church as his representatives. Well, things don't quite go as he wants, although he wins a moral, if not a legal, victory at the end. Can you sue God? Today's reading is from the Old Testament book of Job is about just that, a man who wants to sue God. Not to recover losses from his boat, but something for him far more precious, his integrity, his honour. This man is looking to sue God for vindication. That man is Job, the hero of the book that bears his name. He starts out as a man with everything. He is someone of outstanding character and godliness. The book opens with these words. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright, who feared God and shunned evil. A little later, none other than the Lord God himself will say of Job, there is none like him. As well as that, Job has immense wealth and honour of a large family of sons and daughters. He is, we are told, the greatest man among all the people of the East. However, that the most godly man by far is also the richest man by far opens the way for the suggestion 
that maybe he is the one, the most godly, in order to be the other, the richest. And it's that possibility that leads to the challenge to God to remove his protective hedge around Job to see if then Job might curse God to his face. And that's what happens. God removes his protection. Job catastrophically loses everything he has. He's plunged into terrible suffering and deep misery. At first, Job seemed to take it rather calmly. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job 1, verse 21. However, after some time, Job descends into dark despair and speaks again, this time cursing the day of his birth. Life is so intolerable that Job would rather be dead. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only turmoil. That's from the end of chapter 3. The question for the rest of the book of Job is, how will Job be able to find peace? Where will he find quietness? How will he find rest? How will he find freedom from turmoil? And for 38 of the next 39 chapters in the book of Job, a series of different voices speak into that situation and in response to each other, have said, in response to Job, have said in response to them. Everyone speaks in Job in well-crafted, powerful poetry, Hebrew poetry, that works not so much by rhyme as by rich repetition. It's like reading a well-written play. As we heard, as you would have heard last week, the first to seek to resolve Job's crisis are his good friends who've travelled a long way to console and comfort him. The three try at length to get Job to find peace by turning to God in repentance for his wrongs. Then he will be restored, they say. But this doesn't work for two reasons, says Job. One, I don't know anything that I've done wrong, despite what you say. And this is undoubtedly true because, as we know, Job hasn't done anything wrong. We know that even God has said he is blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil. And two, Job says, I can't get God to deal with me on my terms at all. He All he does is attack me. Well, the friends push back at Job in what becomes an increasingly acrimonious back-and-forth argument. The effect is only to make things much worse for the one they came to help. The end of it all, all that Job can say of his friends is they are, as he puts it, worthless physicians, miserable comforters, who have misrepresented God and have been against Job and not with him. Well, faced with the failure of his friends, Job 
attempt to solve his crisis for himself. And that's what we have in our text, chapters 29 through 31, particularly 31. Job, in his own way, attempts to solve his crisis by suing God, hoping to get vindication. Before he makes that move, he laments a last time his losses. This is chapters 29 through 30. We've not had them read, but they're part of the allocated text for tonight's sermon. How I long, he says, for the months long gone, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. And what Job laments most about is not the loss of his wealth, or even the loss of his family, though these are mentioned, but the loss of who he was. The loss of who he was. In the rather grand, over-the-top style, that's the way of the book of Job, he paints a picture of who he was. He was, he says to us, a man of unsurpassed reputation, honour and dignity. When he took his seat in the city gate, which was the place of gathering and decision, all the others, not just the young, but even the old and the noble, stood in silence when Job came and closed their mouth. Job was most highly regarded because of his great works, unending work of dispensing justice for the oppressed and giving help to the destitute. I put on my righteousness as clothing, he says. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched victims from their teeth. That's who Job was. Job tells us he'd expected to live a long and flourishing life as a man of evident wisdom and leadership among the people whom he says, drank my words like spring rain, and among whom he dwelt, as he says, as a king among his troops, I was like one who comforts mourners. Rather ironically, that's who he was. But now, but now, Job 30 verse 1, but now, he says, they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. Now, that may seem rather harsh, snobbish even to our ears. We live in a much more egalitarian society in that in which Job is written. That world was a, much, was a hierarchical world based on the principle of honour and shame. That's the world of Job. And Job, who was once at the pinnacle of honour and regard, the greatest of the people of the East, we're told, now finds himself mocked and shamed even by the worst outcasts. A base and nameless brood, he says. They were driven out of the land, and now these young men mock me in song. They become, I become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit on my face. That's what he's become. What a downfall. And he bitterly laments what he's lost, what he's become. 
And yet, he never gives up. Right through the book of Job, Job never gives up. He may wish he was dead, but he never gives up. And now, he's had enough of talking to humans. Even if God will not answer him, Job will press his case to God. God will, Job will force God to vindicate him. He will sue God. He does this by making a series of oaths, which you heard read for us in chapter 31. You know what an oath is? An oath is a way of assuring you're telling the truth by calling judgment on yourself if you're not. Like, cross my heart and hope to die. Which means, if I'm not telling the truth, may I die. May I drop dead. Okay, That's what an oath is. And that's what Job's saying. Job uses this a whole series of these in a powerful defense of his honor, of his integrity, as he seeks to wrest from God's hand the vindication he desperately desires. You see, right throughout Job, he has resisted the easy way out. He resisted his wife's way out, curse God and die. He resisted his friend's way out. Solve your problems, Job. Just confess to God you've done wrong and you'll, everything will be restored. No, no, John is never, Job is never cowed. That's, that's the, by the way, the grandeur of this character, by the way. He's never cowed. He never gives up on the truth, no matter what. So now in a series of 19, I counted them, oaths, God calls on God to come out with it. Vindicate him or condemn him. Vindicate me or condemn me. And because Job knows that God he is challenging is the one to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, he intends that his oaths, calling of condemnation upon himself if he's not innocent, will force God to act or else declare he's without fault. The cunning of, the, of it all is this, that even if God doesn't, does nothing after these oaths, which have called judgment, that's a kind of tacit vindication of Job. So he begins, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a young woman. Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? That is, God is the judge of the wicked. It then follows a series of disavowals in the form of oaths. It got the form of, if I've done this, then may this happen, either good or bad. Normally the implication is, if I've done this, then okay, God bring terrible judgment upon me. It's either explicit or often implied. If I walk with falsehood, or my foot hurried after defeat, if my steps have turned from the path, my eyes being or been led by my eyes, if my hands have been defiled, if my heart's been enticed by a woman, or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, if I denied justice to any of my servants, if I've denied the desires of the poor, or let the eyes of the widow grow, grow weary, if I've kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, if I've seen anybody perishing for lack of clothing, the needy without garments, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece from my sheep, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing I had influence in court, I put my trust in gold and said to pure gold, you are my security. If I rejoice over my great wealth, the fortune my hands have gained, and here's about idolatry. If I regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor, so my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage. 
if I have rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him? If those of my household have never said, who has not been filled with Job's meat? If I have concealed my sin, as people do, because I feared the crowd. If my land cries out against me and its furrows are wet with tears because I have devoured its yield without payment and broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. It's an exhaustive list, you might say, in detail, almost obsessive, of what the shape of a life of someone who fears God and shuns evil in the context of the world in which that is written. In other words, Job's life. If God knows otherwise, let him say so. If not, vindicate me. And towards the end, you may have noticed when it was read, so well I might say, thank you for reading it. He kind of, there's an impassioned outburst. It's in brackets in the way the text has been edited for us. It's as if Job is signing an affidavit. Oh, that I had someone to hear me, he says. I signed my defence. Literally, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser, or let my opponent, put his indictment in writing, that is, put his document down, literally in Hebrew. Let him write it out. In other words, it's like Job's issuing God a subpoena <laughs> to appear in court and have it out and write down his, what he's got to say. And Job fully expects that would God do that, it would confirm what Job has already endlessly um, uh, claimed, that he is innocent. Job is taking God to court, not to prove God wrong, but to gain public vindication of his integrity by means of God's sworn deposition. And if Job were to get that deposition, he says in verse 36, Surely, he says, I'd wear it on my shoulder. I'd put it on like a crown. I would give an account to him at every step. I'd present it to him as a ruler. That is, Job will reclaim who he was once the Almighty put his answer in writing. Sue God, vindication, all sorted. Can you imagine, have you ever wanted to have your life vindicated by God? imagine what they'd be like for God to say yes vindicated it's what Job is desperate for and so we read at the end of verse 31 we read this the words of Job are ended we will hear him again in a while but not now this, he's finished he's spoken well now what What will be the outcome of Job's audacious move? Does it work? Has he gone too far? And what do the words of a man who tried to sue God have to say to us today? More good questions. Now, the trouble with this sermon, amongst other things, is that the book of Job was never writ meant to be written, to be preached, in a few chapters, in slices, like I'm doing on a few chapters today, but, but listened to as one drama, read aloud, performed, if you will. Preaching on Job like this is like preaching on a bit of Hamlet 
if you know what I mean. Although, to be frank with you, Job is far more heroic and grander figure than that man. So you can't tell what to make of any part. You'll help find this again later on. Without the bigger picture, what, what are we to make of Job's audacious words? Without knowing, well, what's, what, what happens? To make things worse, that's true this week and true fortnight time on, on another Elihu, right? Scholars can't agree with each other on whether Job was doing the right thing or not. Some say he was right. Some say, no, he wasn't, he was wrong. What chance do we have? <laughs> well, certainly the next voice we're going to hear is convinced that Job has done the wrong thing. When we return to our series in two weeks' time, we're having a, an intermission, by the way, uh, next week, as we look at our missionaries going to Malta. The, a rest, no doubt, from... <laughs> you'll enjoy that. Enjoy, enjoy the Mediterranean next week. Okay. But in the two weeks' time, when we come back to Job... We'll meet an unexpected figure, a fourth person amongst, as well as Job, we didn't know was there actually, who's been listening to all that's been said. We'll hear from one Elihu, a verbose and angry young man, who will blast Job for what he said, for being in effect no better than the wicked in the way he's going on. And then, unexpectedly, even more unexpectedly, Cutting Elihu off, the Lord himself will finally speak. He will answer Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this who darkens counsel by word without knowledge? And the man who wanted answers from God at any cost will now only get questions from God thrown back at him. And in three weeks' time, and the fourth week we'll have two whole Sundays given over to God's astounding words back at Job so don't miss out all I can say now is that in a most remarkable way through his barrage of questions God would enable Job to see God's immense power and unfathomable wisdom in his mysterious and yet strangely personal relationship with all God's creation. The funny bits and the really scary bits. The wild things as well as the domestic things. And that will be enough for Job. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now, he says, my eye sees you. And Job will withdraw his suit. Yes, Job will drop his case against God. Not so much, I think, because he was wrong, although I think he realises he's really pushed the limit. <laughs> but because, although the Lord never says even one word, not one word about Job's innocence or guilt, which Job's did, not a word does he say about Job's situation. Nonetheless, Job realises that suing God is actually unnecessary. He can be satisfied without it. And then, to our great surprise, in the very last chapter, and the last sermon, 
we hear the Lord actually, in some way, actually does vindicate Job. He says to Job's three friends, uh, completely ignoring Elihu, quote, I'm angry with you because you've not spoken to me, spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Job's words may have been, in the long run, unnecessary, and certainly very close to the edge. And yet, God himself says, he spoke of God what was right. How about that? How about that? So we come to the question, well, what about us? Is there something for us in this? Let me say, there is a real sense where Job is not like us at all. I doubt if anyone in this building or on the live stream could make every one of those 19 disavowals Job makes with the complete confidence he had that he was innocent of every, every last one of them. Job is presented to us as an ideal figure in this text. And yet there are two things, I think, for us nonetheless. The first is this. In his never giving up and in his desire to take his complaint even to God himself, Job is a real model for us. In his never giving up and desire to take his complaint even to God himself, Job is a real model for us. As we've been hearing the last few weeks, in the Bible you'll find many expressions of grief and pain and even frustration all addressed to God. It's a common scriptural way of speech. What one scholar wrote about the Psalms of Lament applies equally to Job. These make the important connection. Everything must be brought to speech and everything brought to speech must be addressed to God who is the final reference for all of life. Job never gives up. He never ceases to speak. <laughs> but ultimately, he brings the speeches addressed to God. He looks to God, who is the final reference for all of life. And in that, Job is our model. Secondly, there is something far more significant that we have, which Job did not, and so he can enables us to see that more powerfully. Although none of us can ever claim the innocence of Job, yet in Christ we can have a confidence of vindication well beyond that which Job could ever have imagined. A vindication well beyond that which Job could ever have imagined. St. Paul in Romans 8, verse 33 and following, expresses it well, and I quote, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. You could also translate that, vindicates. Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. 
The gospel announces that Jesus Christ, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins, but raised to life for our vindication. His vindication is the vindication of all who are in him. And that is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. This is not a one-off. Christ Jesus is, as Paul writes, right now, continually standing for us, interceding for us. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest, whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Now the great take home for us, to put it another way, is this. In Christ Jesus, there is no need for you to ever be the person who has to sue God for your vindication. Let's pray. As we thank you, Father, for this rich, difficult, and profound book of the Scripture. We ask you to follow the example of that heroic figure, never to give up, bringing our concerns, addressing you directly. But we also, in the light of that, thank you that we have a vindication and no condemnation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray you'll enable us to stay firm in him in whatever circumstances of life we face. We pray this in the name of our great high priest, even Jesus Christ himself. Amen.